Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We are in a, a series called Reason to Believe. This is part two of that series. And um, we are in April, which means, and I know the weather doesn't really tell us that, but it means that warmer weather is soon to be here. It should be here already. A little ticked off about that, but I'm not bitter or anything. Um, but what we know about springtime, when springtime gets here, it also means wedding season. Wedding season. And, and um, I don't know if you have ever been a part of planning a wedding or if you've ever, you know, obviously if you're married, you've been through that whole ordeal. But um, if you've ever had to plan a wedding, I know this. We have a wedding planner that goes to church here. And I love it when I show up at a wedding and she is there because I know that as a pastor, it makes my job a whole lot easier. I just defer everything to, to Jeanette. She knows what she's doing. Um, but weddings are a big deal. They're a real big deal because usually it involves, well, it always involves a female who has grown up, but usually she's grown up fantasizing about what that day is going to be like, right? I have a daughter and, uh, I have more than once caught my daughter watching the show say yes to the dress. Dangerous, dangerous thing. When I see her looking at dresses and you know that every little girl fantasizes about that day. What's that day going to be like? What's my dress going to be like? What are the flowers going to be like? It's, it, is, it is their day that is set aside for them to be the princess, right? I mean, that's really what it is. And so at, at, there's some interesting characters at a wedding. Um, the first interesting character is the bride herself because she's got all these hopes, dreams, and fantasies, and she wants this day to be perfect. And if it doesn't go perfect, then, you know, she's usually reduced to tears at some, play, at some point. Um, not every bride. I've been uh, with some brides that were troopers. Like, I've seen them go through downpours and kept a smile on their face and were awesome. But I've also, um, actually, we were doing an outdoor wedding, and, and uh, you could see, we were out on this golf course, and you could see off in the distance, you could see the storm coming, right? Like, you know it's going to rain. You know it's going to rain. And the best man looked at me and he said, do you have a five-minute wedding that you can do? Um, it was pouring by the time we got done with that wedding, and I will never forget that. In fact, they just had their anniversary, and it's, uh, you know, what a great thing for them. But the bride has this anticipation, this, this fantasy about what the wedding is going to be like. Then you've got the dad. The dad has two jobs. Basically, his job is to walk his daughter down the aisle and to stroke checks. That's what the dad does. That's his job. Walk daughter down the aisle and stroke checks. You have bridesmaids. And generally what you have with bridesmaids is you have, uh, uh, there's usually a, a, a rivalry or two in the mix. Um, sometimes it's a sister and a, you know, a best friend or whatever, but um, not every wedding do I do, do I see that, but I've, I've done my share of weddings, trust me, and you see these bridesmaids that are competing to have the best hair and the best makeup and the best dress and the highest heels and the whole thing. Uh, there's the groom. And uh, at every wedding, at some point, I make it a point to tell the groom that we really, uh, for the purpose of the wedding, we really wouldn't need him if he had someplace else he needed to be, that we could basically take a cardboard cutout and put it up there next to the bride, because nobody's looking at the groom, they're all looking at the bride. And, uh, you know, he's usually, at that point, he's usually ready to take me up on that and see if there actually is a cardboard cutout, and there's not. And then there's the mother of the bride, the MOTB, Right? The MOTB throws herself into assisting her daughter with the wedding. Um, I usually will tell the bride leading up to the, the wedding, especially on the, the rehearsal night, I'll tell the bride, listen, I've seen the, the most chill, 
laid-back girls in the world go to pieces on rehearsal night. Because at rehearsal night, every question that comes up, and that's where all the questions do come up, every question that comes up, they all get directed at the bride. And uh, generally, there are questions that haven't been anticipated. And sometimes when the bride and the mother start talking about what's the best solution, the answer isn't the same, and then you've got disagreement, and then it's just, it's, what I'm saying is there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of stuff that goes into a wedding, it's just, if you've ever planned one, you know the relief that comes when it's all over. I mean, it's fun, yes, it's a lot of fun, but there's also that part of you that when it's all done, you're like, whew, we got through that. So today, I want us to look at a story about a wedding and in attendance at this wedding were some people that we are familiar with. Jesus was there, his mother is there, and a few, just a handful of his disciples are there. Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel are there. They have not known Jesus very long. Uh, these guys have been around him maybe a few days. Just, uh, he's just really started his ministry, and, and he started with, with these five guys. And so they don't know each other super well. And in John chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 2. We are going to take a look at this, this story, this first thing that happens in the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 2, it's a story that's probably very familiar to you if you've grown up in church. But um, I learned a lot this week getting ready for this. And I think that as you leave today, you will leave and say, you know what? I learned some things I didn't know about that story. John chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. On the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana is not a big city. It would be more of what you would think of as a village, so it's not a super big place. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. <clears throat> when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And we don't know how she said it. Don't know the inflection with which she said something like that, the intensity that she may have said at the level of panic in her voice, but I expect that the level of panic was somewhat high, okay? Just, just taking a guess. It's possible that her panic level was fairly high because this was a bad thing. They have no more wine. So let's just talk a little bit about a first century Jewish wedding culture. First thing you would note is this. This is probably the biggest event that this village will have all year. It's a big deal. All right, people that aren't even involved in the wedding <clears throat> are probably looking forward to the fact that this couple are going to get together because it meant that the village was going to have a party. It was going to be a big deal. It was going to be a big celebration. So that's where we start. This is a big, big deal. People have anticipated this for a long, long time. Second thing I would tell you about this is that when you go to a restaurant, when you go in to sit down and, and have a meal and, and maybe take a guest or you take your family and you're going to have a meal maybe at one of the restaurants here in town, one of the first things that happens is the server walks up to you and the server begins to take your drink order. The server wants to know what would you like to have as a beverage to go along with the meal that you're going to have. And they, they will offer you water, they will offer you soft drinks, they will offer you beer or a wine or, or some uh, cocktail of some kind. And so in Jesus' day, there really were only two options. You could have water or you could have wine. Maybe they might squeeze a pomegranate and get you some pomegranate juice, but that was rather rare. The two things that you basically saw uh, were, were water and wine. And, and the problem with water is that it had a tendency to be very, have a lot of bacteria in it. And uh, this was before germ science, so they wouldn't have known that, you know, all the things that we know about water today. But they did notice just by way of observation that when you drink too much water, it can make you sick. 
And so what they would do oftentimes is they would uh, mix a little bit of wine into their water. It did two things when you did that. Like they might mix it three to one, three parts water to three, one part wine. And, and what that did is it, it, it killed some of the bacteria in the water and it also flavored the water a little bit and made it a little bit more palatable. <clears throat> a wedding feast would have lasted about seven days. Okay, so you got this thing that goes on. It's a big deal. Um, and it was unthinkable that you would show up at a wedding and there would be no wine at the wedding. You just, you, you, you couldn't imagine that, A, you would drink that much water, and B, that there just, there wouldn't be wine present. It just wasn't thought of. And so Jesus' mom comes up, and she says, they have no more wine. Probably a little bit of panic in her voice. Spoiler alert. Jesus is going to fix the problem. You already know that. If you've spent any time in church, you already know that. Jesus is going to make water uh, he's going to make wine out of water, and this will be his first miracle. Uh, the first miracle that Jesus ever does in front of his new disciples. Now keep in mind, these guys have never seen him do anything fascinating or, or, or out of the ordinary. They, just, they, they, they know there's something different about Jesus. They know they're attracted to him. They know they want to follow him. But they really haven't seen a whole lot out of him, and they certainly haven't seen anything that would make them think that he is a, a miracle worker. So he hasn't done anything like that yet. And you might think that his first miracle would be something like heal a child, right? Like he comes upon this, this family and they've got a sick little baby and, 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 and he's able to, to reach down and touch the baby and the family is overjoyed and the child gets up and starts running around. And, and, and what a miracle that would be. What a great opportunity to show off to his disciples what kind of heart he has, what, what's important to him, and those kinds of things. Miracle one for Jesus wine at a wedding just seems a little strange it just seems a little strange that that would be the 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 miracle that that he would choose to do so we're going to take a look at it today you see when when you ran out of wine at a wedding the party's over there's no more celebrating it's time to go home jesus mission his number one mission you want to know what jesus number one mission was keep the party going that's jesus first mission right Keep the party going. He's got to make sure that they keep celebrating. Now, his, his first miracle is not healing somebody with leprosy. That, that would be a great miracle for Jesus. I mean, in Jesus' day, lots of people had leprosy. And if you had leprosy, what that meant was you didn't get to live with your family. You didn't get to eat with everybody else. You got separated. You got looked at differently. You were, you were marginalized from society. You, you, you were disenfranchised, right? You walked around with your hand over your mouth saying, Tame, Tame means unclean. Stay away from me. Don't come close to me. They didn't know what intimacy was. They didn't know what relational intimacy was. They didn't have friends. The world changed when you got leprosy. What a great thing for Jesus' first miracle to have been to encounter someone with leprosy and change that person's life, to reach out and touch them and say, you're not going to have this disease anymore. And these men, to be able to see Jesus do that, would have walked away and said, now we know what his heart is. But that's not what Jesus did. The disciples are going to learn something about Jesus. They're going to learn to trust him. They're going to learn to believe in him. And it will all be unveiled with him turning water into wine at this wedding. Jesus is going to say something about himself, and he's going to develop their trust in him in a whole new way. So our story unfolds really in three parts today. And part one is the hour, okay? We're going to talk about the hour. 
They are at Cana, and it's a wedding feast. The mother comes to him and says they're out of wine. Why has she come to him? Okay, Jesus is about 30 now. Uh, Mary is mentioned in Jesus' story here, uh, in, in Jesus' adulthood. Joseph is not mentioned. So we assume that Joseph has passed away uh, somewhere along the way. Does that mean that Jesus has become the man of the house? It's quite possible that Jesus has been looked on now as the man of the house. Does Mary involve Jesus because he's resourceful? Does she involve him because he's wise, because he cares about people? Does she involve him because uh, he's good at fixing broken situations? He's just always known what to do or to say. Is that the reason that she involves Jesus? We don't really know. She just comes and she says, they're out of wine. Okay, this is a big deal. This is a problem. We can't have this going on. Something's got to be done. See, this is more than just a social embarrassment. In, in first century Eastern culture, and really in Eastern culture in general, it is a shame-honor culture. All right? Now, you don't know anything about that because you've grown up in America, and in America, what we have is an individualistic culture. You've been raised to just think basically about yourself and, and how things impact you and what you think about things and how you react to things. Living in a shame-honor culture means that one of your greatest fears is you're afraid to bring shame to your family or you're, ashamed to bring, you're afraid to bring shame to your village, to your community. You don't want to do anything that would bring that on. In a shame-honor culture, your greatest ambition in life is to honor your family and honor your community. You don't want to do anything that would bring shame, uh, guilt or, or dishonor or shame to your family or to your village. You go through every day of your life asking yourself, if I do this, how will this reflect on my family? How will this reflect on my community and on my village? So running out of wine, partway through the festivities would have been a shame-filled event for this family. On top of all this, you've got a, a father of a bride that's standing there and he realizes, oh, really? So the, the bridegroom is responsible for this celebration and, you know, we always have wine uh, for these seven days as the, as the festivities unfold over the seven days. And now you're telling me that you expect me to believe that you can take care of my daughter when you can't even ensure that there's enough wine for seven days for the celebration. Are you serious? I'm, su I'm supposed now to to trust you to take care of my daughter when you can't take care of this seemingly simple task. See, this is more than just a social hiccup. This is more than just a, a, a huge social embarrassment, although it was that. Mary has come to Jesus, and she is heartsick for this bride and groom. She's worried about them. She, does not, she understands the shame that is going on here, and she knows how bad this is. And it's about right here that you would expect Jesus to look back at Mary and to say to Mary, okay, Mom, I'll get right on that. Okay, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. If that's what you want me to do, I'll fix it. But that is not what Jesus says. In fact, the words that Jesus speaks seem a little abrupt to me. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound real warm and fuzzy, right? That, that's not, that doesn't sound like something you would expect Jesus to say, especially back to his own mother. 
And so you hear that and you think, well, Brett, surely if you look that up in Greek and you, you kind of parse that out in Greek, I mean, surely it softens when you look at it in Greek. No, it's, it's pretty abrupt. It's, uh, it doesn't change a whole lot. Woman, why do you involve me? And I think that it's possible here that one of the things that is happening is Jesus is beginning to separate himself from his mother. He's beginning to communicate to his mom, Mom, I, as I move forward, I'm going to need to listen to a different voice than yours. Your voice is going to diminish, and I'm going to begin to hear an entirely different, a, a more powerful, a more authoritative voice. And I think he's trying to say, Mom, I, I, you know, I, I just, I love you, but the days of you just telling me what I need to do, those days are going to cease because I'm going to be listening to something and someone else. So the first response from Jesus separates he and Mary a bit, and I don't think that's by accident. But then he makes the next statement, and it is a statement that would be used by Jesus again and again and again throughout his ministry. Jesus says in the second part of verse 4, my hour has not yet come. You see, in John's gospel, you're going to see Jesus use this phrase time and time again. It is a phrase that we see over and over. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he knows that time for him is running out. He knows that the sand is, is sifting through the hourglass at a rapid rate, and he knows that he is on his way to a Roman cross. That's what he knows. He knows there is an appointed hour for him in the future, and time for him is running out. And he looks at his mother and he says, my, my hour has not yet come. Look at this in John 8. Jesus has just said something in, in the temple courtyard. The people get really upset about it. Um, they they kind of, you would think that they would just kind of arrest him and maybe want to take him outside the city and stone him. But in John 8, we're told, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, right before the Last Supper, Jesus knows what's going to happen the very next day. And then we read this. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. It's right around the corner. And Jesus says, what, do I, what am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to say, God, get me out of this somehow? No, this is the reason that I came. And then after the Last Supper, Jesus is with his disciples, and this is right before he gets arrested. This is in John 17. He says, it says, after this, Jesus said, he looked forward uh, Look toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. God, we knew this was, Father, we knew this was the hour, and now the hour is here, and may you be glorified in the things that are going to happen in the coming minutes and hours. So Jesus is at this wedding. And there's all this festivity, and there's all this laughter going around him, and there's dancing, and there's eating, and there's celebrating, and it's festive, and it's fun. And now at this wedding, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the cross is already casting its shadow over these early events of Jesus' life. It's almost as if Jesus is looking past Mary and looking past the wedding, and he sees what's down the road for him. And he says, Mom, I know, I know you want me to remove shame and you want me to do something that will bring joy. Someday I'm going to do something that will remove all the shame and I'm going to do something that will bring joy like you have never seen. But that hour is not now. 
that hour is not this moment. The hour has not yet come. And he looks at her and he says, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet here. Now, you might expect Mary at this point to just kind of shrug and walk away like, okay, well, he's not going to do anything. I guess, I guess he's not going to do anything. But that's not what happens. Mary is a typical mother, right? Like, she's not hearing any of that. She knows what she wants to happen. And so she's unfazed by all this. She doesn't seem to be offended. She looks at the servants, and she basically says, just do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he says to do. See that guy right there? He's your boss. If he tells you to do something, do it. Which brings us to the second part of the story today. Water. Let's talk about the water. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So think about getting in your head, because I don't, we don't really see 20 to 30 gallon jugs, but one thing we do see from time to time is a 55 gallon drum, right? So think, imagine if I had uh, three 55 gallon drums up here on the stage with me. That's how much wine we're talking about. That's how much water we're talking about. But it wasn't for drinking. I want you to look at that last verse again, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Not hygienic washing, ceremonial washing. So you ask yourself, well, what's up with that? Now, for most of this series, we're looking at John's telling of the life of Jesus. But in Mark's telling of the life of Jesus, Mark's telling is a little different. Mark's telling is short, and it's action-packed. Mark doesn't really focus so much on what Jesus said as much as he focuses on what Jesus did. And some believe that it was written to a Roman audience, um, not a Jewish audience. And the reason that's suspected is because Mark seems to, to use a lot of Latin expressions. And in Mark's gospel... When you come to a Jewish custom, uh, something that maybe the Roman believers wouldn't have understood, uh, that they wouldn't have the Jewish insight that, that, that they needed to understand the story, what you see Mark do often is he seems to press pause and explain the custom. So when Mark comes to the ceremonial washing in Mark 7, he says, let's press pause on this so that I can explain to you what's going on here. Because the Christian Romans wouldn't have had a, 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 a familiar understanding of the custom. So in Mark chapter 7, we read this. This is a parenthetical statement. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So you can kind of see how this goes. You go shopping, and you come home for lunch, and you wash your hands before you would eat. And we're not talking about... um, uh, an antibacterial washing here. You know, when you tell your kids to go in and, and wash their hands before they eat, you don't want them eating germs, right? That's, that's not, they're not worried about germs. Uh, that wasn't really the issue. Um, we're talking about washing away the uncleanness. Clean, uncleanness. Um, the, the only way I know how to explain this to you is, you remember when you were in first grade and girls used to think boys had cooties? Or boys thought girls had cooties and you didn't want to touch them because it, you got cooties if you touched the girls, right? Remember that? Remember having those conversations? I don't know what you called them. We called them cooties. But that's, that's kind of what's going on. You're in the marketplace 
And maybe you're looking at a, a, a vase and, and you, you pick this thing up and you want to make sure that it's not cracked. And so you want to pick it up and you want to inspect it and, and twist it and turn it and, and, and look at what's there and make sure that it's going to serve the purpose that you're planning to use it for. But here's what you don't know. You don't know who, who else has handled that vase. And it's possible that a tax collector has walked through the marketplace and picked that vase up. And as far as you're concerned, when he picks up that vase, this vile, disgusting, uh, despicable human being that does things that you can't stand and you can't stand the sight of him, now he has touched that very vase. And he's got his cooties all over that vase. And the idea is that when you now pick up the vase, you are made ceremonially unclean. Not bacterially unclean. But the, the problem is now that the, the vile, nasty thing that is this tax collector has now transferred from him to the vase, to your hands. You go home, you prepare food, it touches your food, and now you take that uncleanness into your body. That was the whole problem. That's what ceremonial washing was all about. A prostitute may have walked through, and she may have seen that vase and picked it up and held it and looked at it and thought about taking it to her home. And now, after you come behind her and you pick it up, you transfer all of that uncleanness off of her, onto the vase, onto your hands, onto your food, and into your body. And now you have been made not bacterially unclean, ceremonially unclean. And so that's a problem. And Jesus says, wait a minute, the problem is not the food that goes into your stomach. The problem is the garbage that is coming out of your heart. You see, you, you think it's all about what you're putting in. That's really not the problem. The problem is what originates here and makes its way out. If you're unclean, it's not because of the food you ate. It's because of what's going on on the inside of you. He broke this down into some very powerful terms. Look at Mark uh, 7, 21. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Jesus says, you're right, nasty people do do nasty things, and there is nastiness out there, but the problem isn't just they, the problem isn't the things that they shouldn't do, it's not the things that they shouldn't say, and the things that they shouldn't think, that's really not what's going on here. The problem wasn't touching the vase and the nastiness went into your stomach. The problem is you've got a heart problem. There's something wrong on the inside. You've got a heart problem. And 180 gallons of ceremonial water is not going to fix the problem. Wash your hands all day long. Keep yourself from being contaminated from those people out there is how they thought of it. But the problem isn't those people out there. The problem is right here. The problem is your heart's not clean. The problem is your heart's not good. The problem is what's happening on the inside with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I know this about me. I've got a heart problem. Right? So I don't want you to leave me hanging. <laughs> That's not fair. So I'm going to say I have a heart problem. I'd like for you to respond, me too. Are you ready? I have a heart problem. It's practice. I have a heart problem. Yeah. Me too. Me too. We have a heart problem. And we could wash ceremonially all day long. 
We, we could, we, if we were a part of this, we would want to wash and wash just to make sure that we got all that off of us. You know what? It wouldn't matter because we have a heart problem. John, the guy that wrote the account we're looking at today, later he wrote three letters to new Christians. And in one of those letters in 1 John, he writes about having a heart problem and wanting to be clean. And this is what he says. This comes from the Living Bible Translation. I love the way it says it. 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, to confess really is just to agree that, that I'm wrong, right? It's just to, to agree that it's wrong. God, I see it. I don't like it. Um, it isn't what you're about. I, I, I just, I want to confess it. I want to agree. To confess is to agree. But if we confess our sins to him, he can be depended on to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. And it is perfectly proper for God to do this for us because Christ died to wash away our sins. Jesus would say, it isn't just that you touched the vase. It's not just that you touched a person. It's not just that you touched some food somewhere. This is a heart problem. And all of the ceremonial washing that you might do isn't going to take the problem away. And then Jesus talked about the hour and he said, my hour has not yet come. See, he's looking down through the next couple of years of his life, and he knows that there is a day coming when he will give his life, and in giving his life, he will cleanse us from the inside out. See, these guys were all thinking about doing this outside in. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, the problem starts on the inside, and somehow it's got to be cleaned. John uses two words, forgive and cleanse. You do realize, right, that when you give yourself to Christ, when you experience the forgiveness that comes from the cross that Jesus went to the cross and purchased for you and me, the forgiveness that is so necessary for us to be uh, whole and, and healed, you do realize that when you did that, you are forgiven, not just a little forgiven, not just sometimes forgiven, that when you accepted what Jesus did for you on the cross, for those of you who have done that, when you accepted that, you are completely forgiven. Completely. Now, we're not an amen kind of church, but that's an amen kind of statement. Am I right? You are completely forgiven. See, I say that because you likely have something in your past that's embarrassing. You likely have something in your past that when somebody mentions the word sin or when somebody mentions the word God or when someone mentions being holy, the first thought that comes to your mind is that thing or those things that come up in your mind and you think to yourself, man, I wish I hadn't done that. It's that thing that haunts you. It's that thing that when you bow your head to pray, the devil says, wait a minute, you can't pray. <laughs> you think you're going to pray? You think I'm going to let you pray when you got that thing in your past? Are you kidding me? You can't do that. See, we've all got those things that when we bow our head, when it comes to God, these things come to our mind again and again and again. But I want to read that verse to you again. But if we confess our sins to him... He can be, what's the word? Depended. He can be depended on to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. Every 
wrong. And it is perfectly proper for God to do this for us because Christ died to wash away our sins. Those of you who have been forgiven by Christ, you just need to know that God sees you as clean. God sees you as clean. You say, Brett, I'm not clean. No, God sees you as clean. Back to the water. John chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. They go find a well. They take pitchers. They start filling up every one of these jugs full of water, 20 to 30 gallons each one. You ask yourself, how serious is, were these guys about ceremonial washing? 120 to 180 gallons worth of water serious. That's how serious they were about this, right? That they took this as a big deal. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they draw some of this water out. They put it in this container and they, they're, they're carrying it to the the MC or the MB, the master of the banquet. And it looks different. There's something that doesn't look like water. Draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. In other words, nobody does this. Nobody does this. Why have you been hiding the good stuff? And you think about the groom. Do you think going into, I mean, if you were planning a wedding and you knew that you needed a certain amount of wine, right? You knew it was going to be a big deal. You knew people were going to consume a lot. Most of the time when we plan a dinner, when we plan to entertain people, we have a pretty good idea of whether or not we have enough, right? And when you don't think you have enough, you're worried about it. I just imagine this bridegroom and his family, and they've made all this preparation, and they're hoping it goes great, but in the back of his mind somewhere, he's thinking to himself, Man, I, I, the, the, the wine thing, man, it's sketchy. It's sketchy. I don't know if I got enough wine. I'm pretty sure we, we may run out of wine. I mean, there's no way this guy goes into this feast and he's thinking to himself, oh, I got that covered. We got plenty of wine. You, you have to think that he went into it thinking, man, this is going to go bad. At some point we're going to run out and, and it's going to be an embarrassment. And, but I'm just going to, you know, it's all I got. It's all I can do. So maybe they won't be thirsty. That's which has never been the case at any wedding that I've ever attended, okay? But, but, but maybe they won't drink a whole lot. And now he's hearing from the MC, and we, we read this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is miracle number one. Wine at the wedding and Cana. This is the first. And John doesn't use the word miracle. What word does he use? Signs. He uses the word signs. Signs point to something. Do something for me. I want you to get this image in your mind. Get the image in your mind of a woman standing next to a man. Okay? Just get the image of a woman standing next to a man. Here's what I'm talking about. 
right? When you see this, there's no question what that sign means to any of us. I mean, the minute you saw that, you know exactly what that means, right? It means there's a bathroom close by. So when you take a long trip on a plane, you have a long flight, when you land and you get off the plane and you deplane and you're walking through the terminal, one of the first things you're looking for after a long flight is one of these signs, right? Everybody looks for one of those. And nobody has to tell you what that sign's going to look like. We all know that's the universal symbol for restroom, right? There's another way to do it. I mean, if you wanted to, you could do it like this. You could put a sign up that says, our public restrooms are located at the end of the corridor just past the elevators. You will find a restroom for the women on the right and one for the men on the left. But nobody looks for a sign like that. When you get off the airplane, this is what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for. It's unmistakable. Everybody knows that's what we're looking for. Signs do not exist for themselves. Signs point to something. The miracle of Jesus was pointing to something. It was pointing to his essence. And it was pointing to his character. When Jesus feeds a bunch of people with just a few loaves of bread in John's gospel, he then gives them a sermon where he basically says, listen, I'm the bread of life. I'm the, I'm the one who has come to meet your deepest hunger in life, okay? I'm going to meet all those needs. So Jesus, did he Xerox some bread? Yeah, he Xeroxed some bread. Making bread was really not the point. It was a sign that pointed to something about his essence and his character and the nature of who he was. He said, not only do I make bread, I am bread. I'm going to meet your needs. You're, you're, I'm going to fill you up. I'm going to satisfy you. I'm not just going to give you some bread that you're going to eat once and then you're going to get hungry again. I'm more than that. I'm the bread of life. And you get the same thing in John 11. There's two sisters, Mary and Martha. Their brother Lazarus has died. You know that story very well. They're, they're grief-stricken. Jesus is, is going to raise Lazarus back to life. But before he does, he looks at Martha, and what he says to her is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he looks at her and he says, do you believe this? He brings Lazarus back to life. It's a sign. It points to something. It points to the essence and character of who Jesus is. He is the resurrection and he is the life. Question. What does turning water into wine at the wedding point to? What's that sign all about? I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection of life. Here's what Jesus is saying. I and the master of the feast. Turning water into wine was the sign of something bigger. So we've talked about the hour, we've talked about the water, now we're going to talk about the feast. Now the word may not mean much to you, but the Jewish people living in the first century, when Jesus would say, I am the master of the feast, that would be a big deal to them. They would instantly know when Jesus said, I'm the master of the feast, that would instantly resonate, that would instantly speak to every one of them. That would have set off all kinds of alarm whistles for these guys that are following Jesus around. <clears throat> Long before Jesus comes along, the prophets talked about what Messiah would do when he came and what God would do through the Messiah. And one of the things that would happen is there would be this massive feast, this banquet, this big 
banqueting table. You would find this kind of thinking and this kind of talk in, in Isaiah 25. This is a prophecy that happened 700 years before Jesus shows up. And Isaiah is predicting the end of time, the coming of Jesus. And in chapter 25, verse 6, it says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. And here you get the details about the feast. A feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines. When the master of the banquet at the wedding at Cana sips this wine and asks, why did you keep the good stuff until now? The disciples that are following Jesus around who knew the Old Testament, they go, oh my goodness, it's him. This is the guy. We've been with him just a few days and this is the Messiah. This is the guy everybody's been waiting on. The master of the feast will come and prepare a banquet. I want us to notice the aspects of a feast. It's called a feast or a banquet, which indicates that there will be no shortage of food. And, and we're not talking about something that you throw in a microwave for 25 or 30 seconds to heat it up or, you know, a minute and a half to get it good and hot, right? That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about high quality. I'm talking about the best kind of food you can imagine. I'm talking about going into a chef's restaurant and he's going to prepare his best meals for you and he's going to flood the table with every best dish he can make. That's the kind of feast we're talking about. When God wants to give us an image of the end of time when everything that has been broken is mended and made right and made new, the image that he chooses is that of a feast where there's all this food and there's all this celebration and there's all this joy. Think of some of the best memories you have in your life and chances are good that they involve really good food and really good friends. Think of some of the times when you were the happiest in your life and I'll bet you good food and good people, generally they are a part of those things. Sin has messed with everything. It has messed up every relationship, every heart, every school, every church. The effects of sin are thorough, and everything that is wrong for all time, something's wrong with everything that we encounter. Something's wrong in every relationship we have. Something's wrong everywhere. Even the best dinners we go to, even when we're having a great time, in the back of our mind, we are reminded, and there's this nagging thing, that it's not all okay. This is wrong. You've got something, even as you sit here, that gnaws at you that says, this isn't right, this isn't right, this relationship isn't right, something's wrong at work, something's wrong with one of my kids, something's wrong in my marriage, something's wrong somewhere, it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. You can be having a great time and still something gnaws at you and reminds you something's wrong. The feast that Isaiah talks about when God returns in his fullness is not like that. Then we come to this in verse 8 of chapter 25 of Isaiah. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You have this image of a feast and then you have this you have God restoring everything that's been broken now you you hear that language and you think I've heard that before and and you you recognize that from the the New Testament in the very final pages of the New Testament the book of Revelation you read where God says I'm making all things new and there's not going to be any more death there's not going to be any more tears 
There's going to come a point when stress gets told, get out. You don't belong here. There's going to be a point when you're told enmity and strife and, 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 and disease and, and illness, gone. Tears, gone. The Bible begins with these words, in the beginning. When God creates, and then John's gospel begins with the same words, in the beginning. It, it, it's, it's like John saying, with the coming of Jesus, it's like there's a whole new creation is going to come. Genesis, in the beginning God created. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, God in, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John is envisioning a time when everything will be completely recreated. See, our visions of heaven are too boring. We, we have no idea what to expect. And, and we, we, we close our eyes and we try to use our imagination and it never works. We say, God, give me a clearer vision of what's to come. And God would say, a feast is coming. Death and disease will be gone. Sin will be gone. Stress will be gone. There will be an abundance. It will be high quality. There will be laughter. There will be relationship. There will be joy. There will be dancing. This is the image that God chose when he prepares us for what is ahead. And this week, when you feel the most downcast and discouraged, you just need to remind yourself, a feast is coming. When you go through things and they're hard and you don't understand, you need to remind yourself, a feast is coming. When you look at your life and you see the sin that is riddled all throughout your life, you need to remind yourself that a feast is coming. When your marriage is not going well and you get discouraged, you need to remind yourself that a feast is coming. When you can't seem to do it right, you need to remind yourself that a feast is coming. Jesus says, I am the master of the feast. I want to uh, show you a book. The irony here is that Jesus is at this wedding where there's all this joy, and he is envisioning the sin, uh, the suffering that is to come. And often we sit in seasons of suffering, and we envision a time when joy comes. Tim Keller is a pastor of a church in New York, and he wrote a book called Encounters with Jesus. The first five chapters of the book are from the book of John. And uh, it started out as a series of lectures. He was over in Oxford in England, and uh, these Christian students had been invited to bring their agnostic and atheistic and questioning friends to these series of lectures. And, and uh, he, he wrote uh, some things for them. Um, he talked about how Jesus was at a wedding at Cana and what he did there. And, and he had thoughts of the crucifixion that was to come. This is what Keller wrote. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Jesus sat at a wedding, sipping the coming sorrow. You and I sit in a world full of sorrow, sipping the cup of joy that is yet to come because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the master of the feast. There is a feast coming. You will not sit in sorrow forever. There is a day coming when Jesus is going to make all this right. I want to show you one last picture. Those of you have, who have given your life to Christ and been forgiven... There's a feast that awaits us. 
going to be beautiful. There will be no shortage of food. It will be the best food possible. There will be laughing and dancing and joy. All the wine you can drink, all the fun you can have, it's all going to be there. But there are people, and it's been prepared for us, but there are people who don't have an invitation to that yet. And you don't have an invitation not because you're not worthy, not because God doesn't love you, not because you haven't done something that you're supposed to do. You don't have an invitation because you haven't given your life to Jesus and you haven't been forgiven. You need to be forgiven. You need to have your soul made right. And it's, it, you can't do that by performing better. You can only do it by giving your life to Christ, being cleansed from the inside out. We want you at that feast with us let's pray together father i thank you that we will not endure this world forever i thank you that our sin and our shame is not what marks us but what marks us is the blood of jesus and we are forgiven and we don't ever have to second guess that we don't have to worry about it we don't have to hang our head when we come to pray to you we come to you this morning boldly and say to you, we agree that we are sinners, but we also know you went to a cross to forgive us. And we stand here today forgiven, and we thank you. And Father, we now pray to the, the master of the feast, the one who shows us how, much, how great is his love for us, what he's willing to do for us. And Father, my prayer is for the one who's never given their heart to Christ, for them to finally look up and realize they have been invited to the feast all because of Jesus. Lord, we love you and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Yeah.
guys for joining us and have a great week.
Well, good morning, Cross Lane. We are so glad to be here with you today. Would you stand as we worship together?
moment, say good morning to those around you.
sing this out together. The war is over. Turn around. Lay your weapons on the ground. The smoke is fading before the light. The dead are coming back to life. We 
going to move into a time of communion um, where our servers are going to come forward and they are going to pass out um, a piece of bread and a cup and uh, we're going to hold on to that take that together when Tracy comes out.
this week I had the privilege of preparing communion. And I don't do it all the time, but I, I do do it every once in a while. And this time, for some reason, I was just kind of overwhelmed. I just I came with this just feeling that I was doing as I was spilling the cups. And, you know, I thought I was filling plastic cups with grape juice. But the more I thought about it, that's really not what I was doing. I was putting redemption in cups. And then today, every one of you has one of those cups. And it means something different to every single one of us. There's struggles in this cup. There's victories in this cup. There's defeats. But it all means the same to us. It's grace. It's love. It's mercy. It's forgiveness. And like I said, it was just, it was just, for some reason, I just, I, I was overcome with that. And so we're going to take our cup with grape juice. And we're going to take our bread today. But for all of us, it's sacrifice, it's forgiveness. And on the night before Jesus died, he took a loaf and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then likewise, he took the cup and he also blessed it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray for the offering. Father, what a glorious day you've given us. And you give us so many blessings. And right now, during this time of service, we want to give those blessings back to you. And so we pray as these tithes and offerings are collected that they're used to bring people to know and accept Christ as their Savior. And we ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. And if you're a first-time guest with us, we're very excited that you're here and that you've chosen to spend your time with us this morning. If you are a first-time guest, I encourage you to visit the Welcome Center after the service, and we have a small gift of kind of a token of appreciation for you coming today. I've got a few announcements that I want to make sure you're aware of. The first one's regarding Wednesday night chapel. So this is a service that's basically worship, and it's some teaching, and it's just a good night to get together. And it's this Wednesday at 6 o'clock, which coincides with youth groups. So you can bring your kids. They can go to youth group. You can come in here and worship and, and hear some teaching. And so I encourage you to be here this Wednesday at 6 o'clock for that. And then on Thursday night, We'll have one of our two fundraiser dinners for the mission trip. And we're only doing two dinners, and so I just encourage you to come and support the mission team that's going to New York this summer. It will be a chicken and noodle dinner Thursday night, serving from 5.30 till 7. You can either eat here or you can take it home with you. Adults are $7, kids are $4, so it's very reasonable. You get a full meal. So um, please come and uh, support the team. There's tickets available at the Welcome Center if you'd like to purchase them tonight or today, and then you can also purchase them the night of the dinner on Thursday. And then if you were thinking about going on the men's retreat, today is the deadline to sign up. So we need everyone to sign up today if you're thinking about it. If you've not made that decision, please make that today. Um, if you have questions about it, still see me afterwards, and I'll make sure I get those answered for you. Um, we also have a couple special guests that I'm going to bring up here for a moment in just a second. They're from the ARC Christian Ministry, and this is a uh, ministry that we've supported over uh, several years. 
and it's a camp up in Converse, Indiana. And so we're going to have Danny Wright and Jonathan Rios come up and talk a little about it. So welcome, Danny and Jonathan. It is such a blessing to be with you this morning. Um, like uh, Tracy just said, you guys have supported us for a number of years, and, and we truly appreciate that. As a matter of fact, the psalmist teaches us, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And on Tuesday mornings, we have staff devotions and prayer time. And during that prayer time, we pray for churches like yours. We pray for individual donors who give of their time. We pray for people who come and who serve at summer camp and who come and lead retreats at our facility. And, and we're just so thankful for all of those opportunities. Because it's people like you that make it possible for us to continue to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, mission-minded, and discipleship-directed. And part of that discipleship has revealed itself over the last few years in what is our internship program. And we have interns who come and they'll live with us at the camp, in community, with uh, the staff there on the campgrounds. And uh, we actually have an opportunity to teach them what the camping ministry is all about. But we get them into local churches and give them an opportunity to serve in local churches. We also uh, help teach them about stateside ministries and stateside missions. And then we have this joy, because of people again, like you, to send them all over the world. We've had eight interns all over the world over the last few months. Uh, we had two in Israel. We had uh, one in Ethiopia, two in Zimbabwe, one in China, one in Japan, and one in the Dominican Republic. And uh, that's probably all you need to hear from me because I have one of the interns here this morning. This is Jonathan Rios, and he comes to us from Puerto Rico and, uh, and was also in Zimbabwe for the last few months. So, Jonathan Rios. Well, like he said, like Danny said, I'm from Puerto Rico, and um, I just want to give you a glimpse of how my journey has been throughout these two years in the internship. So I started in Puerto Rico. I started college. I did two years of college, and then I felt God calling me to Indiana to do this internship to seek him more. And I was like, man, like I'm in the beach. You know, it's hot here. Over there, it's cold. I don't want to be in the cold. But then I struggled with that question, and I, I was like, yeah, you first, God. So I just went to Indiana, and uh, from there, he just started molding me and pushing me into stuff that I was uncomfortable with, like right now, like public speaking. <laughs> it's not my thing. <laughs> so that's throughout the year, and then he took me to Zimbabwe, and over there, just it was an amazing experience just living with them, eating the food that they eat, live the way that they live, and not only did God use me, but he used the people in Zimbabwe to teach me more about him and like how he is working in Zimbabwe already and like how Zimbabweans where I was they put all their trust in God because they really don't have that much but the joy that they have is real and all because of Jesus Christ and when I saw that over there he just taught me that he just taught me like hey put everything on me because I am everything. So if it wasn't for you guys supporting the camp, I wouldn't have had this experience. So thank you so much.
How cool is that? <laughs> Pretty cool. If you've never been to the Ark or you've never seen what they do, it's, it's pretty fantastic. And uh, I, I don't know Jonathan very well, but I've been around Danny some, and what a great guy, uh, just a super guy. There's good stuff happening at the Ark. Um, I learned a long time ago, Jonathan, don't tell God what you will and will not do. I told God when I was about 22 years old that I was not going to Indiana. And I've spent my whole adult life in Indiana. So um, he just kind of laughs at our plans, doesn't he? Hey, if you are a first-time guest, I know Tracy's already said this, but if you're a first-time guest, we want to thank you for being with us today. You do us a great honor by being here, and uh, like you said, we have a gift for you at the Welcome Center. If you came to Easter and you came back, wow, we really love that and hope that you um, have a, a, a great experience today with us. We love you, and, and uh, you are certainly welcome here. This is, um, this is the time of season, the, the time of year that I really love. I don't know about you, but I, I get really amped when I start to think that we're going to see green coming onto trees, and grass is going to start growing, and snow is going to stop falling. Um, it is April, isn't it? It's April, right? <clears throat> um, woke up at my parents' house yesterday morning, there's snow on the ground. I'm like, what's up with that? So, um, but one of the things that you know when you get to April is you're coming into wedding season. Anybody planning a wedding? Yeah. You're probably at a place where you're thinking to yourself, man, when is this going to be over? I mean, I know weddings are fun, but planning a wedding is not something that I want anything to do with. And if you knew my organizational skills, you would say, no, Brett, we don't want you having anything to do with planning a wedding. But uh, weddings are a big deal, usually because it involves a bride who has spent the biggest portion of her life fantasizing what her wedding is going to be like, right? She's, she's from a little girl. She has fantasized what her hair is going to look like, what the flowers are going to look like, what the dress is going to be like. I know. I have a daughter. She watches Say Yes to the Dress. Scares me to death. Scares me to death. I'm like, elope. Just elope. It'd be better for everybody. Just elope. No, I want the dress. I want the flowers. So there are some characters at a, at a wedding that you run across, and, and you will recognize these. There's the bride herself, and like I said, she's She's really amped about her big day. She's thought about it. She's fantasized. She knows exactly how she wants it to go. There's a dad, and really dad's only two responsibilities are to walk the center aisle with his daughter and to stroke big checks. That's really dad's job, right? Just walk down the aisle, write checks. That's all he's supposed to do. You have uh, bridesmaids, and generally when I do weddings, it's always fun for me to spot the rivalry within the bridesmaids because there usually is one. There's usually two girls that they don't really know each other, but they've been thrown together in this bridesmaids thing, and they don't really like each other, and it's always fun for me to just watch the dynamics of that. I know I'm sick and twisted, but it's fun for me. It's fun for me. People ask me, would you rather do weddings or do funerals? And I say, I'd rather do funerals. They don't talk back. Um, <clears throat> there's the groom, and uh, I generally tell the groom at some point in the whole festivities, look, dude, Nobody cares about you, really. I mean, I hate, to, I hate to break the news to you. We could put a cardboard cutout of you up here, and nobody's going to notice because they're all looking at the bride and the dress and the flowers, okay? And uh, usually at some point, right before I walk him out, I turn around and scream, dead man walking. That always sets him right at ease. Um, and then there is the mother of the bride, the M-O-T-B, the mother of the bride, and she throws herself into assisting her daughter as she gets ready for the wedding. Today, I want us to look at, at a wedding in the Bible that you 
If you've grown up in church, you're familiar with this story. If you are new to church, this is a, maybe a new story to you, but I, I'm going to try and show you, draw some things out of the story that you may or may not know, and, and I think it'll be helpful for us today. Jesus is at this wedding. He's in attendance with his mother, and he also has some followers that have just recently, like within days, have just started following him, and uh, that, those guys were, were Peter and Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel. They haven't been with Jesus for very long. And they don't, they don't know Jesus super well. So this is their chance to kind of see what Jesus is about. And in John chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. This, basically all of this series centers around John, the, the book of John. We'll, we'll step outside of it once in a while. We'll step out of it today. But today we're in John chapter 2. And it says this, on the third day, and this is it's kind of like the, you know, the, the disciples haven't been with him very long. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in Galilee. Now, Cana is not a big place. It's not a big city. You need to think in terms of a small village. Okay, that's what we're talking about. It's not a monstrous place. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And we don't really know how she said this, but I expect that there was some panic in her voice when she says this, right? Like there's no more wine. So let's just talk a little bit about first century Jewish culture. And the first thing that you need to know is that this is probably one of the biggest events of the year for this little village. In fact, people in this village are probably, have probably been looking forward to this wedding for some time because it's party time. Okay, this is, a, this is a big deal. And there's a lot of people that have been looking forward to this for a long time because the whole village gets involved and it was just a really cool thing. Second thing you need to note is this. In America... When you go to a restaurant, one of the first things that happens is a, a server comes to you and they ask you, would you, what can I get you to drink? And they offer you, a, you know, there's a laundry list of things that they might offer you, water, soft drinks, they might, might offer you a beer or, or wine or a cocktail of some kind. They'll kind of list what the specials are, you know, in terms of what you might be able to have. Um, but in Jesus' day, there really were only two options. You, you either had water or you had wine. Maybe once in a while they might squeeze some juice out of a pomegranate. You'd have some pomegranate juice or something, but that wasn't normal. Uh, pretty much you drank water or wine. And this was, you know, they didn't have germ science. They didn't understand bacteria and things like that. But they had noticed that when you drink a lot of water, you tend to get sicker, right? It's not healthy in this culture to drink an awful lot of water. So what they would do is they, they began to mix a little wine in with their water, and it did two things. It would destroy some of the bacteria in the water. It made it a little bit healthier. I don't know that they really knew that, but they probably figured out when we put some wine in there, it helps. It also flavored that water a little bit, made it a little, uh, you know, gave it a little bit of a taste. And so at a wedding, at the feast, it would last about seven days. And like I said, it was a, it was a big deal, and it was unthinkable that you would show up or that you would provide this feast as you, get, you know, did this wedding, all this that happened around your, your big day, it was unthinkable that you would show up at this wedding feast and that there would be no wine. It was unthinkable for a couple of reasons. One, you just, you wouldn't ask anybody to drink that much water, and it just was, it was a part of the culture. You had wine at the meal, so, or at the feast. So Jesus' mom comes up to Jesus and, you know, probably in some kind of panicked voice says, they've run out of wine now spoiler alert <laughs> jesus is going to turn water into wine okay he's going to fix the problem we all know that 
The first miracle that Jesus ever does for his new disciples is this this miracle of, of water into wine. You might think that his first miracle would be to heal a child, right? He's got these new disciples following him around, and you might think to yourself, well, wouldn't it be better if Jesus' first miracle, if he shows the disciples his heart and how much he cares for little children, and he comes upon this young couple, and they've got a small child, and the child is not well, and Jesus kneels down and touches the child and heals the child, and everybody's happy, and the disciples walk away going, wow, Jesus really cares about young kids. But that's not really what happened. Um, it was miracle one, and it was wine at the wedding. And you see, here's the, here's the thing that you need to ask yourself. What was Jesus' mission as he does this miracle? And really, one of the, one of the missions, of, as far as the mom is concerned, is he's on a, miracle number one is keep the party going, Right? That's what we got to do. We got to, like my dance moves, that's, that's all I got. That's it. Take a, take a picture because that's all I got. It, Jesus' first miracle was not healing a guy with leprosy, which you might think is something that he would do. Uh, if I were to talk to you a little bit about leprosy, which was common in Jesus' day, that disease changed your life. Because once you got leprosy, you couldn't live with your wife, you couldn't be with your kids. You went to a special place where a bunch of other people had leprosy and they kept you all together. Your meals weren't the same. You, you weren't accepted in society the same way. You couldn't go to temple. There, you couldn't do anything that was normal once you got leprosy. You basically walked around and if anybody got close to you, you held your hand over your mouth and you yelled, Tame, Tame, which meant I'm unclean. Don't come close to me. And so it would have been a great miracle for Jesus' first miracle to find somebody who was a leper and walk up and touch them and heal them, these disciples would have watched that and thought, man, look at his heart for someone who's been basically removed from society and look at how he's going to restore him and allow him to be back with his family. But that's not what he does. What he does is wine at a wedding. And what Jesus is saying about himself and what his disciples are going to learn about him is as, as they develop some trust in him, we're going to see some things that Jesus is saying about himself. Now these disciples are going to learn about Jesus. They're going to learn to trust him. They're going to learn to believe in him. And it will be unveiled through this turning water into wine at the wedding. Our story unfolds today in three parts. And the first part is the hour. Okay, we're going to talk about the hour. They're in Cana. It's a wedding feast. His mom comes and says, look, they've run out of wine. This is a bad thing. And, and, and so you ask yourself, why has she come to him? Um, Jesus is about 30 now. We don't really have any uh, mention of Jesus' father, Joseph, his earthly father. We don't see Joseph mentioned as Jesus is an adult. We only see about Mary. And so we assume that Joseph has either died or something's happened. He's not in the picture. Um, does that mean that maybe Jesus has become the man of the house? And did Mary involve Jesus because she knew that he was resourceful? Did she involve Jesus because he was just good in conflict and he was good at trying to help things go better? Did she involve Jesus because he just always seemed to know what to say and what to do? Why did she come to Jesus? Was he good at fixing broken situations? Why would she come to Jesus? They're out of wine. This is more than just a social embarrassment. You need to understand that. See, in first century culture, in first century Eastern culture, and really in Eastern culture in general, even today, uh, in a lot of places, 
It is a shame-honor culture. It's a shame-honor culture. We don't get that as Americans because the culture we live in is very, very individualistic, right? Like we're individuals, we protect our individualism, you know, we, 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 we tattoo ourselves, we, we adorn ourselves with jewelry, the clothes we wear, the cars, there's, there's 40 million different brands of car you can get. You know, we're very individualistic, and so we grow up in a culture that is all about the individual. But, but in, in the first century Eastern culture, it was a shame-honor culture. So your greatest ambition is to bring honor to your culture, to your community, and to your family. The worst thing you can imagine is that you would do something and it would dishonor your family or that it would bring dishonor to your village. You just couldn't even conceive that you would do that. So when you got ready to do something, you were trying to decide, one of the filters that you ran that through was, will this dishonor my family? Will this bring shame upon my community and upon my village? Running out of wine partway through the festivities would have been a shame-filled experience. Okay, really bad, really bad that you would run out of wine through your festivities. So on top of all this, you've got the father of the bride. And he's expecting this bridegroom to have provided this feast and to have all this wine there and have all the arrangements made and everything's supposed to go off without a hitch. And all of a sudden he discovers that there's no more wine at the wedding. The first thought the father of the bride has is, really? You want me to trust you with my daughter? You can't even provide wine for your own wedding? You, you, you can't do what is, what is customary and what's normal? I'm not sure that I can trust you now with my daughter. And so this was a huge, this was a big social hiccup, okay? This is, this is, a, this is a huge social embarrassment. Mary has come to Jesus, and she is heart sick for this bridegroom and the bride. And she wants to see this restored and fixed and And she knows that this shame could stay with this young man for a long, long time. She doesn't want to see that. And it's about right here that you would expect Jesus to look back at his mother and say something to the effect of, okay, mom, if if that's what you need me to do, I'd be happy to do that. Right? I mean, we just expect Jesus to be warm and fuzzy. And I mean, this is mom after all. And I just saw my mom over the weekend. And when my mom says, hey, do this, I don't ask a lot of questions. I do it. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm older, but... But when mom and dad tell me to do something, I still do it um, because that's what sons and daughters do. But you would expect Jesus to look back and say, mom, I'm just here to serve you. You know, just tell me what you want me to do and I'm happy to do it. But that's really not what he does. In fact, the words that Jesus speak seem a little abrupt. Verse four, woman, (laughs) I'd hate to think what my mother would do if I referred to her as woman. (laughs) Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound warm and fuzzy to me. So you think to yourself, well, Brett, what, you know, if you look it up in Greek, does it get a little softer if you look it up in Greek? And the answer is no, it doesn't get any any more soft. It's still abrupt. Woman, why do you involve me? I think it's possible here that one of the things that's going on is that Jesus is beginning to separate himself from his mother as he gets ready to step into his ministry. I think one of the things that he's trying to communicate is, Mom, as we get started here, I need, to, I need you to understand that I'm going to be following one clear voice, and it's not your voice. I know that up until now, when you've said something, I've listened to you, and you've guided me, and I've, I've been very respectful, and I've always done what you said, but Mom, 
from here on out, what you need to understand is I hear one clear voice, and that is the voice of my Heavenly Father. So the first response from Jesus is one that kind of separates he and Mary a bit, and I don't think that is by accident. But then he makes this next statement, and it is a statement that we would hear used again and again by Jesus in the book of John. In, verse, in the second part of verse 4, it says, My hour has not yet come. This is a phrase that you see over and over in the life of Jesus in the book of John. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he knows that time is running out for him. He knows that the sand is sifting through the hourglass, and he knows that he is on his way to a Roman cross. That's what he knows. That is looming for him. That is always out there for Jesus. As Jesus goes through his entire life, it is never lost on Jesus. There is a Roman cross waiting for me at the end of all of this. Look in John chapter 8. Jesus has just said, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to put it up on the wall for you. Jesus had just said something in the temple courtyard. It's got people really upset. And you would, you would expect maybe that they would lay hands on him and drag him out and try to stone him. But you read in John chapter 8, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, right before the Last Supper, Jesus knows what's going to happen the very next day. He knows he's going to be crucified. And in verse 27, we read, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. It's right around the corner, and Jesus says, What am I supposed to say? God, get me out of this? I don't want to do this? He says, No, this is exactly why I came. I came to earth for this hour. And then after the Last Supper, Jesus is with his disciples, and right before he is arrested, we find this in John 17. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward the heavens and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. The hour has come. He knew it was coming, and here it is. So Jesus is at this wedding, there's all this festivity, there's all this laughter going on around him, there's this dancing and eating and celebrating, and now he's at this wedding, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the cross is already beginning to cast a shadow over these early events in Jesus' life. It's almost as if Jesus is looking past Mary, and past the wedding feast, and past these days, and he sees that Roman cross down the road for him. And he says, Mom, you want me to remove shame? You want me to do something that will bring joy to these people? Someday I'm going to do something that will re remove all the shame and will bring all kinds of joy, but that hour is not right now. That hour is yet to come. This is not my hour. Why do you involve me? My hour is yet to come. Now, you might expect Mary at this point to hear Jesus say that and go, okay, just kind of shrug maybe and walk off and leave Jesus alone. That is not what she does. She's a typical mom. And when her son kind of mouths off to her a little bit, she just comes right back. Look at what she does. She's unfazed. She doesn't seem to be offended. She just turns to the servants and says, you just do whatever he tells you to do. Okay? That, see that guy right there? He's the boss. Just do whatever he tells you to do, and things are going to work out fine. Which brings us to part two of the message today, and that is the water. The water. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, 
we don't really use 20 to 30 gallon jugs. I don't know that you've got any of those standing around your house, but you probably are familiar with a 55 gallon drum, right? So imagine three 55 gallon drums. That is a lot of water. We're talking about somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water, but this is not water for drinking. This is, is something different. Let's revisit that verse, verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding twenty to thirty gallon gallons. This is not hygiene washing. Okay, this isn't washing to get rid of bacteria on your hands. This is something different than that. For most of this series, we're looking at John's telling of the story of Jesus, but in Mark's telling of the life of Jesus. Um, Mark doesn't focus so much on what Jesus said as much as he focused on what Jesus did. And some believe that the book of Mark was written more to a Roman audience than a Jewish audience. Um, and the reason that that's suspected is because Mark seems to use a lot of Latin expressions that would have been more common for the Romans to understand and to use. And, and in Mark's gospel, when you come to a Jewish custom, it seems pretty uh, ordinary for him to kind of stop things down and then to explain that so that some people that aren't in Jewish um, culture, so that they might understand it a little better. So when, when it comes to this ceremonial washing thing in Mark 7, he says, let me press pause and let me explain to you what's going on. And so in Mark chapter 7, verse 3, we kind of read this parenthetical remark that Mark writes. He says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So you can kind of see how this goes. You, you, you go shopping, you come home for lunch, um, you wash, and then you eat. And, and we're not talking about trying to get the, the, you know, using antibacterial wipes or antibacterial soap. That's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about washing away the uncleanness that you may have come into contact with from a religious point of view. So it, it would kind of look like this. You're, you're in the marketplace and you're gonna buy a vase. And so you walk up and you pick a, or should I say vase? Does that sound better if I say vase? Do I sound smart if I say that? I'm from Kentucky, it's a vase. So, or it's a water pot in Kentucky. So you're gonna buy this vase and you pick it up and you're gonna inspect it and you're gonna turn and you're gonna look and you're gonna make sure that there are no cracks in it. You're gonna make sure that it is sound to be used for whatever it is, whatever purpose you're gonna use it for. You're gonna inspect it. But here's what you don't know. You don't know whether or not a tax collector has walked through the marketplace and a tax collector may have picked up the vase. And he may have inspected it. He may have put his hands on it and held it up to the light and seen whether or not it was going to suit his purposes. And now the idea is if you pick up this vase after he has picked it up, now he's unclean to you. The tax collectors were considered despicable. And you wouldn't dream of touching something that a tax collector had touched. Remember when we were little, first and second grade, and the boys didn't like the girls and the girls didn't like the boys? And you remember we used to run around the playground and we, we, we didn't want to get cooties? You remember cooties? Think cooties, okay? That's what they thought. Well, if he's touched it, it's got cooties. It's, it's unclean. We can't touch that. It makes me unclean, all right? So, or maybe um, 
a prostitute is, is walking through and she sees the vase and she picks it up and she starts to look at it. You, you just wouldn't even dream of touching that vase after a prostitute had touched it unless there was something to make you clean again. So what would happen is you, you would come home from the marketplace before you would ever eat anything. You, you know, nasty people do nasty things. They say nasty things. They think nasty. You just didn't, you didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so you would, you would come home and Jesus says, okay, the problem is not the food that goes into your stomach. You think that's the problem. That's not the problem. The, the problem is the garbage that comes out of your heart. That's the problem. If you're unclean, it's not because of the food you ate. It's because of what's going on inside of you. See, they, they would come home and, and they would do this ceremonial washing because they'd been to the market. The idea was if I, if I touch this food after having touched that vase and gotten that, those cooties on me, and I bring that home, and that gets on my food, and now that goes into my body. It makes me unclean from the outside in. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the problem. You're unclean. It's not because of the food you ate. It's because of what's going on in your heart. So he broke it down into these powerful terms in Mark. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. Jesus says, you're right, nasty people do nasty things, but nasty is not just out there. The problem isn't just that they do nasty things. The problem isn't just that they are unclean. It's not that they say bad things, or it's not that they do bad things. The problem wasn't touching the vase. The nastiness went into, it's not that nastiness went into your stomach. You've got a heart problem. And 180 gallons of water isn't going to take your heart problem away. Jesus would say, wash your hands all you want. The problem isn't that something on the outside is getting on the inside and making you clean. The problem is your heart is dirty. Your heart's got, it's garbage in there. That's the problem. Now, I don't know about you. I do know about you. I'm just waiting to see if you're willing to admit it. But I'll just tell you about me. I have a heart problem. My heart's not good. It has nothing to do with how it's beaten. It has nothing to do with how it's working. I don't have a good heart. You don't have a good heart. Don't leave me hanging. Let's just do this, okay? One of the things we, one of the phrases we use around here is the phrase, me too, right? I walk up here and I say, I'm jacked up, and you say, me too. You know what? I have a heart problem. I have a heart problem. You need to hear yourself say that. You need to hear yourself understand what's going on inside you. We have a heart problem. We need Jesus. We, we can wash all day long. It doesn't fix the problem, okay? We have a heart problem. John, the guy who wrote the account that we're looking at today, later in his life, he wrote three letters to the Christians, and in one of those letters, 1 John, he writes about having a heart problem and wanting to wash it clean. And this is from the Living Bible Translation. I love the way it says it. 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins to him, and confessing really is just agreeing. Okay, that's all confessing is. It's just agreeing. It's just saying, you know what, you're right. I, I, I'm unclean. I've got a, I've got a heart problem. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not as clean as I want to be. Uh, there's something wrong. But if we confess our sins to him, he can be depended on to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. And it is perfectly proper for God to do this 
for us because Christ died to wash away our sins. Jesus would say the problem isn't just that you touched the vase or touched a person or ate some food. It's a heart problem, and all the ceremonial washing in the world isn't going to fix that problem. And when Jesus talked about the hour, my hour has not yet come. He is looking down the road and he's looking past the next couple of years. And he knows that there is a day coming when he will give his life for us to cleanse us from the inside out. John uses two words, forgive and cleanse. You do realize, right, that when you gave your life to Christ, when you said yes to the cross, when you said yes to the gift of forgiveness that Christ purchased for you on the cross, when he forgave you, you do understand that was a complete forgiveness, right? You understand that. But there's not anything, once you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, there's not anything else to be forgiven in you. You are forgiven. You understand that, right? You understand that when you receive the forgiveness of Christ, you are made clean. God sees you as clean. You understand that, right? And I say that because you likely have something in your past that bothers you. You likely have something in your past that you are ashamed of. You probably have something in your past that when you think about bowing your head to pray or going to church or spending time with what you consider to be religious people, that thing pops up into your brain. And you think to yourself, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I can't pray. Every time you bow your head to pray, the devil starts whispering in your ear that thing that haunts you, that thing that he will not let you forget, that thing that you think keeps you away from God. But once you've come to Christ and been forgiven, you are made clean. It's, it's what we call righteousness. It's that right standing with God. You are clean in the eyes of God. Now, we're not an amen church, but that's an amen statement. Can I say that? Amen, right? I mean, we, are, we have nothing else to consider once we've been forgiven. We are clean in the eyes of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful statement. And it comes to your mind again and again, that thing that haunts you. I want you to hear this again. But if we confess our sins to him, it just simply means to agree. Yes, God, that's me. That's what I'm guilty of. Yes, God, that's what I did. I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to even try to act like I didn't do it. That's me. If we confess our sins to him, he can be depended on to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. And it is perfectly proper for God to do this for us because Christ died to wash away our sin. Those of you who have accepted Christ into your life, you need to understand God sees you as clean. He sees you as clean. Back to the water, John chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So they go find a well, they take pictures, they start pouring water into these big jugs, and they fill every single one of these 20 to 30 gallon ju- uh, jars up with water. And you ask yourself, this you know, the ceremonial washing thing, honestly, how seriously did they take that? They took that about 120 to 180 gallons worth of serious. Okay, this was a big deal. You've got to have water there to ceremonially wash your hands. Verse 8, then he told them, 
Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Keep in mind, this is water meant to ceremonial, ceremonially clean people, religious water. These guys dip this water out and they're, they're carrying it to the master of the banquet, the master of the feast. There would have been like an MC. There would have been a guy that would have overseen all this stuff. And something looks different about this water that they just took out of this jar. They, they can't explain it, but it doesn't look like water. They draw some water out, take it to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. In other words, nobody does this. What are you doing? Nobody does this. Why are you hiding the good stuff? You should, have, you should have led with the good stuff. By the time they've had so much to drink, they don't even know how bad the stuff is that they're drinking at the end. And the groom, think about this from the groom's point of view. Have you ever planned a dinner or planned an event and gone into it with the question, I wonder if I have enough? I wonder if we've got enough green beans, or I wonder if we've got enough sweet tea or whatever. You ever gone into it thinking to yourself, man, I don't know if we've got enough bread, or I don't know if we've got enough meat to serve all these people. If this guy was short on wine, he probably knew it going into the feast. He probably already knew before this all unfolded, man, I'm really worried. I don't, I don't think I've got enough wine. This is going to be bad. But it's one of those deals where, you know, it's too late. <laughs> You can't run out and get more, or maybe you can't afford any more, and you're just going to make do with what you've got. And maybe he thinks, well, maybe they'll just want water. Which no wedding have I ever been to where everybody was like, no, water's good. We'll just drink water. No, that's not, in my experience, that's not what happens at weddings, okay? It's like wine, more wine. He probably knew what was going on. And he's probably thinking to himself, man, this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. This is going to be an embarrassment. I'm going to run out of wine going to be awful and now he's hearing from the MC that it's not water it's wine and it's not just wine it's great wine and listen to this what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of, of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him miracle number one wedding at Cana this is the first and John doesn't use the word miracle what word does he use sign this is a sign do something for me get an image in your head get an image in your head of a woman standing beside a man you got that image in your head does it look like this that's not what you were thinking was it see when you see this you know bathrooms are close right you see that emblem, you know bathrooms are close. When you walk into a store and you're looking for the restroom, that's what you're looking for, that sign, because that's the international symbol for a restroom. When you fly, isn't it true, when you've had a long flight and your plane finally touches down and you get off and you're walking through the terminal, that's what you're looking for, right? That's what you're looking for. There's another way to do it. it could, they could do it like this if you want to. Our public restrooms are located at the end of the corridor just past the elevators, 
You will find a restroom for women on the right. You will find one for the men on the left. But nobody does that. Nobody wastes that much space and does that with a sign in the, in the airport. Instead, you get this. And here's why. Because signs do not exist for themselves. Signs point to something. Signs always point to something. The miracles of Jesus were always pointing to something. They were pointing to his essence. They were pointing to his character. When Jesus feeds a bunch of people with just a few loaves of bread in John's gospel, he then gives a sermon where he says, listen, I'm the bread of life. Do you understand that? You eat of me and I fill you up and you don't ever need to eat again. And he didn't mean physically, he's talking about spiritually. I'm the bread of life. So yeah, Jesus Xeroxed some bread, big deal. No, the big deal was he's making a point. I'm the master of the feast. I am the bread of life. Not only do I make bread, I am bread. I am the bread of life. See, you get the same thing in John 11. There are two sisters, Mary and Martha. They have a brother named Lazarus, and Lazarus has passed away. And the sisters are grief-stricken. And Jesus is going to bring Lazarus back to life. But before he does, he looks at Martha, and this is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he brings Lazarus back to life, and it is a sign that points to something. It points to his essence and his character, and that he is the resurrection and the life, and that he can be trusted. Question. What does the miracle at, point, uh, uh, what does the miracle at Cana point to? I'm going to keep the party going? I mean, is that, really what it, is that really all it is? What in the world is the point to, I'm going to turn this water into wine? What it's saying is, I am the master of the feast. And when the, the, the people that were watching this, when they saw this for the first time, turning the water into, the, into wine was a story about something bigger. It pointed to something bigger than just water and wine, which brings us to part three, the feast. We have the hour, we have the water, we have the feast. Jesus is the master of the feast. Now those words may not mean a whole lot to you, but to Jewish people living in the first century, they knew their scriptures. They, they would have, when they heard, I am the master of the feast, this would have set off all kinds of bells and whistles for them. They would have heard that and instantly thought, uh-oh, he's talking about something big. See, long before Jesus comes along, the, the, the prophets talked about what the Messiah would do when he got here and how God would work through the Messiah. And one of the things that would happen is there would be this massive feast, this huge banquet. You would find this kind of thinking in Isaiah chapter 25, this is a prophecy that takes place probably 700 years before Jesus. And in Isaiah 25, it's predicting the end of time and the coming of Jesus. And this is what it says in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. And here you get a little detail about the feast. A feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the, best, uh, the finest of wines. When the master of the banquet... At the wedding of Cana, sips that wine, and he asks, why did you keep the best until now? Jesus' disciples instantly remembered what was said in the Old Testament, and they said to themselves, oh my goodness, it's him. It's him. The master of the feast 
will come to prepare a banquet. I want us to notice the aspects of the feast. It's called a feast or a banquet, which means there is no shortage of food. Okay? It's not like what maybe some of you are going to do today when you get home from church, especially if you're single. You're not going to prepare some big spread on your table. You're probably going to go home, grab something out of the refrigerator, throw it into the microwave, heat it up for a few seconds, and gobble it down, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about something you throw into a microwave and heat up for 35, 40 seconds or a minute and a half and get it good and hot. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about high-quality, great-tasting abundance of food. That's that's what a feast is. When God wanted to give us an image of what the end of time looks like, when all that has been broken is going to be mended, when all is made right, the image he chooses is the image of a feast where there is no shortage of food and where it is of the highest quality and where it tastes fantastic. Think of some of the best memories you have in your life. And the odds are good that really good friends and really good food were a part of that experience. When you think back over the times in your life when you laughed the best and you felt the most accepted and you felt alive and you felt full and you felt content, the odds are good that you have really good people around you, people that you love, and and you are around food. That is the image that, that God puts before us as we think about what waits for us. Sin has messed with everything. Sin has messed with every relationship we have. It has messed with our schools. It has messed with our churches. Its effects are are thorough. They are everywhere. And not everything is wrong all the time, but we know all the time that something is wrong all the time. And so even when you go to the finest dinners with your best friends and you're eating a great meal, there's always that thing in the background that's nagging at you that lets you know there's something wrong. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. You know, my marriage isn't good. My, my job isn't good. My boss is upset with me. I'm having trouble with one of my kids. There's something going on in my body. I think I may be sick. You may be sitting there having a great dinner, but in the back of your mind, you always know something's not right. Something's not right. Something's not right. Because something is wrong with everything. And so even at the best dinners, even, even with our best friends, we have this unresolved conflict that we bring to that dinner. The feast that Isaiah talks about when God returns in his fullness is not like that. Listen to what it says in verse 8 of Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You have this image of a feast, and then you have this, you have God restoring everything that's been broken. Some of you may recognize those verses because you've heard them in the New Testament toward the end of your Bible on the last pages in Revelation when God says, I'm making all things new. I will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more pain, no more hurt, no more disease, no more death, no more conflict. The Bible begins with three words in the beginning. Then you come to John. The very first words out of John's mouth in his gospel, in the beginning. It's like John's saying, with the coming of Jesus, there is this new creation, and he's going to come, and he's going to heal everything. Genesis 1 starts out, in the beginning, God created. John 1 starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John is envisioning this time when Jesus will come and he will recreate everything and it will be perfect. Our visions of heaven are so boring. I mean, we try to close our eyes and think about what it must be like to be in heaven, and our imaginations, as feeble as they are, cannot even conjure up how awesome heaven is going to be. And God would say, a feast is coming. A feast is coming. Death and disease will be gone. Sin will be gone. Stress will be gone. There will be an abundance. It will be of the highest quality. There will be laughter. There will be dancing. There will be joy. This is the image that God chose when he decided to talk to us about what it looks like at the end. Today, many of you are going through what can only be described as a challenging season. And this week, when you are at your most downcast, this week, when you struggle the hardest, this week, when you think there is no hope, I want you to know a feast is coming. A feast is coming. We serve the master of the feast. I think it's why Jesus does this miracle as number one. It isn't just wine for the couple. It's pointing to him. And it's pointing to who he is. Jesus says, I am a master of the feast and a feast is coming. The irony here is that Jesus is at this wedding and there's all this joy and he's envisioning what is before him and none of it's good. And often we sit in our misery and in our sorrow and we look ahead and we see the joy that's coming. Jesus was in the middle of the joy and all he could see was the sorrow coming for him. If there's an irony there. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He's brilliant. If you've never read anything by Tim Keller, you're cheating yourself. He's, he's awesome. He wrote a book called Encounters with Jesus, and the first five chapters are from the book of John. And one of them is about the wedding feast. The book started out as a series of lectures that he was giving over in England at Oxford, and some Christian students, a group of Christian students, had been invited to these lectures, and they'd been invited to bring their atheistic and their agnostic and non-believing friends, the skeptics. And, and so Mr. Keller spoke to them for five nights one of the talks that he gave was on the wedding at Cana and the water to wine. And he talked about how Jesus was at a wedding and he had thoughts of the crucifixion that was to come. And here's what Keller wrote. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Jesus is at a wedding. And he's sipping the coming sorrow. We sit in the sorrow. And we sip the coming joy. There is a feast coming. No matter how dark it is in your world, there is a feast coming. If your marriage isn't good, there's a feast coming. If your relationships are broken, there's a feast coming. If there's something wrong in your body, there is a feast coming. Whatever is hard for you, whatever, whatever hurts you today, whatever sorrow you experience in this day, there is a feast coming for us. And it is glorious. And that's what Jesus was trying to say when he turned water into wine. I'm the master 
of the feast. I want to show you one last picture. Somewhere in time, there's a table set for us. And we will sit and we will enjoy the finest that God can roll out for us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never received the gift of forgiveness, if you have never been cleansed, listen, you can go to church every day of your life. If you don't give your life to Christ and get forgiven, you're just going to church. You can't do anything to be good enough to get into heaven. You can't do anything to earn a ticket to that feast. All you can do to get into that feast is to be forgiven. We desperately want you at that feast with us. You need Christ. And you need his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we simply just bow this morning. We thank you for the, the richness of your word. The things that get said between the lines. The things that even in our culture, sometimes we don't even understand about the culture Jesus was in. But Lord, when he turned this water into wine... He pronounced himself the master of the feast and everybody knew the significance of that. I pray, Father, that we would see the significance of it. And I pray that today we would be encouraged to know that there is a feast coming. And Father, for the person who's never given their life to Christ, I pray that they would see, maybe for the first time, that it has nothing to do with how good they are. They will never be good enough. What they need is to be forgiven. And that's as simple as humbling themselves and falling at the feet of Jesus and asking to be forgiven. Father, I pray that that would happen today. We love you. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
we've had together. Um, it looks like Brett has an announcement. Yeah, I want to just ask you, just you can stay standing. We're just, uh, Billy came up, he asked us to pray. He's got a girlfriend, she's got some health problems, specifically stomach. He's asked us to pray for her, so if you just bow with me quickly. Father, you know what goes on in every one of our bodies. You know how to heal it, you know how to fix it, you know why it's broken. Sometimes it's broken for a reason. Sometimes we're sick for a reason. Sometimes you're going to do something bigger. And, and, and sometimes we don't even know but Lord, whatever it is, we just lift her up to you, ask your blessing on her, ask that she would be not in pain, that, that, that you would achieve your purpose no matter what it is. And if she could be healed, Father, we would pray to that end. Lord, we, we, we bless you, we honor you as we leave this place. Would you be lifted up and would you be glorified by the lives that we live? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Have a great week.